isn't it? That's not entirely true. I'd expected a situation similar to the one I'd known at art school. I'd expected a sense of camaraderie with fellow students. I thought I'd find them to be brothers and sisters in arms, but no. They were curiously aloof and somewhat unapproachable, and I wondered how much ganja they'd ingested to be so emotionally attenuated. They had a way of conversing, and I found myself on the outside of it. Unlike art school, I was often found to have ideas and attitudes that were not acceptable, and subject to lethargic, languorous ridicule. ridicule. It felt a little like speaking with Lindy Dale's parents, where I was working class and they were middle upper class. Middle upper middle class. The Darmites, as I came to call them, were elitists of another sort completely. With the Dales, it was not my ignorance of culture, but my long hair and love of blues. But I also loved J.S. Bach, cut no ice with them. With the Darmites, my long hair was at first entirely acceptable. The fact that I loved blues, Bach and Shakespeare, however, was regarded with suspicion. They seemed to hold the opinion that nothing of Western culture had any worth. That I was knowledgeable in terms of Tibetan culture and history cut no ice either because all that was merely academic. The knowledge I lacked was inside information concerning lamas. Where was the Dalai Lama travelling next? Had I taken certain empowerments or not? The other Dharmite characteristic was, to my mind, the infantile pretensions to egolessness. They were all sick of samsara, whereas I had to admit I was merely suspicious of it. I found life to be fun in general, the deaths of my closest friends notwithstanding. My commitment to Vajrayana was valid from my own point of view, but not from theirs. I was always willing to question myself and even willing to look at myself as they looked at me. However, the conclusions I drew were, in the end, my own. I was no great practitioner, but neither was I the dilettante of their narrow imaginings. For some reason, most Western people called the village of MacLeod Gange Dharamasala. The town of Dharamsala, however, lies some miles below the smaller town of Upper Dharamsala. Upper Dharamsala, in turn, lies some miles below MacLeod Gange. MacLeod Gange, to my relief, is a thousand feet higher than Dharamsala and therefore cooler. I could not discover why Western Buddhists misname MacLeod Gange, but suspect they don't relish the British Raj associations. 
McLeod Gange and the nearby Forsyth Bazaar were British Raj hill stations. Whilst not being a supporter of British imperialism, I am interested in history. And that interest put me in the way of a heartwarming conversation with an Indian Army Major on the train to Pathankot from Delhi. He shared his goat curry with me and a fine meal it was. I told him of my father having been in India in 1927 in the Khyber. He told me, proudly but with genuine delight, that the Indian Army maintained traditions that were forgotten in the British Army. I thoroughly enjoyed conversing with the Major, but the reference to it was met with derision when recounted to Western Buddhists. Armies and soldiers were bad per se, as was the British Raj, and no interest was found in the delightful human connection that had been made possible by both. There was obviously something wrong with me. Was I too simplistic? Was I ethically vague? I shall not dwell on this aspect of my stay in the Himalayas because there are other matters of far greater import to relate. After the morning Buddhist classes at Gangcheng Kishong, I'd have lunch and then explore the area around MacLeod Gange. I had not taken into account that I would find myself in a mainly Geluk area, in terms of Vajrayana. That was no problem in itself, as I have never been sectarian, but what I was hoping to find were Nyingma Nakpas. Yeshi Kadro told me that there were two in the area, but could not be precise about where they were. I had a photograph in the back of my mind, Ajo Rapa Rinpoche from Anagarika Govinda's book, Way of the White Clouds. And I wanted to meet someone like him. I pronounced his name wrong at first because the book had spelled the name awkwardly as Ajoripa Rinpoche, so that it read to me as Ajorpa. I later discovered that Ajo Rinpoche was a Rapa, a master of Tumo, hence his name was Ajo Rapa. These names became easier once I started learning Tibetan from Sonam Wangdu an older student at the Tibetan School of Medicine and Astrology. The Tibetan alphabet was a delight. I enjoyed learning to make the shapes, even though the spellings were baffling at first. That sprulsku was pronounced trulku seemed capricious, until I realised it was no worse than psalm, pneumatic, mnemonic, diarrhoea, xenophobia, phlegm, polkitrude, polkritude, calipagus or bathycolpian. At least Tibetan spelling was consistent. In English, O-U-G-H can make a variety of sounds. Cough, rough, though, through, thought or bow. And there is no way, if one is not British, to understand how these words are pronounced, 
without remembering the individual pronunciation of each variant. I then learned how to pronounce Nakpa and went off in search of one of the two who lived in the area. It didn't take long. I'd been watching a dance performance by the children at the Tibetan school in Forsyth Bazaar and on my way back to MacLeod Gange I saw a figure advancing from the distance on the narrow track. As we approached each other he began to look increasingly like Adjo Repa Rinpoche but with none of the severity of the face in the photograph. As we came close enough for words to be plainly heard he looked at me with a merry expression and a certain mischievousness and exclaimed, Yes! That was his only word of English. The Nakpa in question was Nakpa Yeshe Dorje, and this meeting marked the beginning of my training as a member of the Gurkha Changlode, the class of those with white skirts and uncut hair. I went to his home come temple and met his Sangyum, his spiritual wife, Kandro Tenzin Drolka, who was as astonishing as he was. She was younger by some twenty years and utterly radiant. She was a disciple of a lama called Kyabje Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche, and sometimes she would travel somewhere to see him for short periods of time. There were several meetings at the home of Nakpa Yeshe Dorje and Kandro Tenzin Drolka before it became obvious that I had entered into a period of formal training. It unfolded quite naturally without arrangement or discussion. It was taken for granted that I would wish to practice Troma Nakmo, the Black Wrathful Mother. I should really have practiced Tantric Nundro first, but Nakpa Yeshe Dorje, through Sonam Wangdu, my translator, told me that I could practice Nundro in parallel with Troma Nakmo. Then, suddenly, from having all the time in the world, my day was entirely taken up. I had to give up the classes at Gangcheng Kishong and spend my morning performing prostrations in the Tsukla Gang. Sunam Wangdu helped me with transcribing the text into English and phonetic Tibetan. It was not a lengthy text, so it did not take long. It was the shorter Nundro from the Dujum Tersa, a treasure or practice discovered by Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche. Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche was the incarnation of Dujum Lingpa and a great Nyingma Lama and Terto whose visionary revelations amount to 20 huge volumes. He was the incarnation of Kyechung Lotsa, one of the 25 disciples of Padmasambhava. As soon as I heard the name Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche, an uncanny exhilaration swept over me. Maybe it is because I write poetry that word sounds can be unusually powerful in my ears. On analysis, however, the sounds in themselves were not what I would usually consider evocative, resonant, resounding or poignant. Something else carried the sense of awe, but I could not identify it.
Maybe it was the reverence in Nakpa Yeshedorje's voice. Maybe there were other reasons connected with the time and place that I heard the name. I could not cognise any relevant signifier. However, the deduction was delved, and from whatever direction, I deduced that Kyabje Dujamrimshe Jigdral Yeshedorje was the Emperor of Vajrayana. It was there in my mind when I segued into sleep. It arose when I awoke in the morning. It was a blazing beacon that drew me into an unknown future, a space in which anything could happen. That the prostrations involved with the Dujum Tersa Nundro were painful at first is a meaningless statement, even from a person who is not violently keen on exercise. Suffice it to say that the pain subsided fairly quickly and the number of prostrations I could perform increased. The fact that it was the Dujum Tersa Nundro somehow made it worthwhile whatever pain was involved. Nakpa Yeshedorje suggested that I perform all four aspects of the Nundro each day in order that I wouldn't become too exhausted by the prostrations. The advice worked out well. By the time I returned to Britain, I had completed the shorter Dujum Ter Nundro and the prostrations of the longer Dujum Ter Nundro. I would practice in Farnham and complete the longer Nundro before I went to whatever art school accepted me for a degree course. Then, during my time at whichever art school I attended, I would complete the Troma Nundro, as, thanks to Sonam Wangdu, I had the text translated and converted into phonetic in order that I could chant it. The afternoons were mainly spent with Nakpa Yeshedorje, either with Sonam Wangdu to translate, or on my own just observing him making torumas, or engaging in ritual preparations. I was shown how to make many things on this extended tantric crafts course. These skills have been valuable over the years in terms of being able to show my own students how to make practically anything they need. Drum and bell cases, chupans, robes and the entire assemblage of what members of the Gurkha Changlode might require. Much of this craft learning was conducted without Sonam Wangdu because all that was required was that I observe Nakpa Yeshe Dorje and copy whatever he did. When I made mistakes, he put me right because he observed me in the way I worked to emulate his skills. This education differed entirely from my expectations, but I was delighted by it. I dove in at the deep end and found myself swimming in a situation in which everything felt natural. This was nothing like anything I'd found in the books I'd read. It was nothing like my previous practice of silent sitting. When I asked about silent sitting, Nakpayeshe Dorji said that I would need to receive teachings of that nature from Dujam Rinpoche, and that, in fact, I should go to see him in any case, as I would need to receive the empowerment of Tromanakmo. It was also put to me that Dujam Rinpoche would be my Tsawai Lama, 
and as he was the Dalai Lama of all the Nyingmas. That statement came as a jolt, a glorious shock, but a shock nonetheless. I was suddenly a member of the Nyingma tradition. It was what I had wanted for years. I had wondered whether it would ever be possible, but had classified that wondering as mere wishful thinking. It had been a fantasy. Such things could not happen. Now, not only was it possible, but it had already happened, without being able to identify when it had happened. It had been taken for granted, as had everything else. Naturally, I would wish to practice Turamanakma. Naturally, I would want to complete Tantric Nundra. Naturally, I would wish to enter a three-month solitary retreat. Naturally? Well, yes, ideally I would. Ideally, I wanted to be the person for whom that would be natural. It had been who I thought I could be, but was I that person? Was I that person now that the opportunity was there for the asking? I found the idea of three months in isolation daunting, but I was sure I'd take it on as soon as I could manage it. And so it was that I was to set out for Nepal to meet Kyabje Dujam Rinpoche Jigdrel Yeshe Dorje, the supreme head of the Nyingma tradition. In Nakpa Yeshe Dorje's view, he was none other than Padmasambhava, a lama of such preeminent status that everyone looked to him as the source of inspiration. This was so fabulously exciting that I couldn't really conceive what was happening to my life. I'd taken a traje trajectory when I was eight years old and I'd followed it at a modest pace till now, even with all my reading. Now the circumstantial vector was escalating, intensifying at a rate that was hard to comprehend emotionally. I'd lost control of my life, but I was happy to have lost control of it. It was like the moment of taking a plunge from a high diving board or the edge of a cliff. There's the moment in the air before you crash into the water. It was my choice to dive, so the outcome was obvious. It's just that I thought it would have taken a lot longer. Maybe it had taken a long time. From eight years old to 19 years old is 11 years. Is that a long time? The adolescent years are long in terms of experience, far longer than the years of one's 20s or 30s. Looking back, those 11 years seemed like decades, and now the world was accelerating. In the first month of being in India, the speed of the trajectory became exponential and suddenly I arrived in Nepal. It seemed sudden when I got there, but it took nine days by bus and train. It was far from pleasant. When I finally got to Bodhanath in Nepal, however, I knew that was exactly where I needed to be. My first sight of the great Churton 
left an impression on me that has never dwindled. I have seen far more ostensibly imposing architectural Buddhist features, but none have had the impact of the great Churton of Bodha. <laughs>